just so you know, uh, we're posting the full uh, podcast with Carol Bowman before we had divided it into two parts. And because of scheduling conflicts, we only posted part one. So this is the full thing. Trish and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the mystical underground. Thanks for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey, is along with us. Mystical underground is a place where the weird and wonderful flourish, where ideas that are contrary to mainstream materialistic science are explored, and the mundane everyday world takes a back seat. You can go to our website, <clears throat> Phenomena 111, to find out more about our nonfiction books, including the most recent one, Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. And uh, you can go to, you can visit blog.synchrosecrets.com where we make regular posts in our blog. Today, our guest is author and past life therapist, Carol Bowman. Carol is an internationally known author, lecturer, past life regression therapist, and pioneer in uh, reincarnation studies. Her two books, Children's Past Lives, Bantam 1997, and Return from Heaven, published by HarperCollins in 2001, are now classics in the reincarnation field and have been published and read around the world in 22 foreign editions. She has appeared frequently on TV and on the radio, including Oprah, ABC Primetime, Good Morning America, Unsolved Mysteries, The Art Bell Show, and in several documentaries on A&E and Discovery. Carol has been a past life therapist for adults and has been doing research on children's uh, spontaneous past life memories for more than 30 years. I first met Carol at a Borders bookstore in 1998, I think it was, when I was browsing in the New Age self-help section. Her book, Children's Past Lives, How Past Life Memories Affect Your Child, literally fell at my feet. I devoured the book in a couple of days and emailed her about how much I had enjoyed it. I mean, up to this point, there was nothing like Carol's book. We met in 1999, 21 years ago, when Rob and I and our daughter were visiting friends in upstate New York and drove to Philly to meet Carol and her husband, Steve. At the time, Carol was working on a second book, Return from Heaven, Beloved Relatives Reincarnated Within the Same Family, and she needed an agent. I referred her to our agent, Alice Zuckerman, and he took her on as a client. Today, Carol is a full-time past life therapist <clears throat> whose practice focuses on the healing of phobias and fears brought in from past lives. Her own journey began when her son Chase was just five and the family was living in Asheville, North Carolina. It was July 24th, 1988, and every year Carol and Steve hosted a big July 4th party at their house, which was a short walk to the best spot in all of Asheville to watch the booming firecrackers. But I think Carol should tell us what happened at that July 4th celebration. Welcome to the podcast. Carol, take it away, girl. Thank you. And I have to say that uh, I've been friends with Trish and Rob ever since. It's been a wonderful <laughs> friendship. 
and she's supported me in my work and my writing, and I really appreciate it. So back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us the story. Here we are. <laughs> well, set the stage. Um, we hosted a big party on the Fourth of July in 1988, and Chase was five at the time, and my daughter was eight. And um, we had a lot of kids running around, and we made our way down to the fireworks at as it was getting dark. And the fireworks were held on the municipal golf course, which were these kind of hilly, grassy areas. And when we approached, there were people lying all over the ground and people running around. It was a little chaotic. And as soon as the big booming sounds began, my son Chase became absolutely hysterical. He had never done anything like that before, and I couldn't calm him down, so I took him home, and I remember rocking him in the rocking chair just to settle him down. And I thought, well, that was really a weird (laughs) experience, and I, you know, but as a mother, you write things like that off. You know, he was five years old. He had been very excited about having everyone over and they probably ate too much sugar. So I (laughs) wrote it off as just overstimulation. About a month later or a few weeks later, we were visiting an indoor swimming pool, a municipal pool in Asheville. It was the first time we'd been there. And when people, it was an enclosed space. When people jumped on the diving board. It made this big, booming, reverberating sound. And again, Chase became hysterical. Mm. I pulled him out of the building and I said, what's wrong? And he said, the noises scare me. And I was trying, at that point, I was trying to figure out what in his short life had happened that might cause him to have that hysterical reaction, which he had never had before. This was it. Had he been to that pool before? No, that was the first visit to Uh the pool. But he had been to fireworks before, and he never had that reaction. So, you know, I started wondering. I was a stay-at-home mother, you know, full-time mom. And, you know, I knew what he had been exposed to in his short life, and I I couldn't figure it out. Well, as fate would have it, um, a hypnotherapist was visiting us from Florida, Norman Ng, and I had worked with him a year before doing a past life regression, which helped cure a chronic lung problem that I had. And Chase was due to start uh, kindergarten at the Rainbow Mountain School in Asheville. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, maybe Norman can give him some post-hypnotic suggestion. So the next time he was exposed to those booming sounds, he wouldn't freak out and (laughs) they would have to call us from school. Um, And Norman was a very skilled past life therapist with adults. He worked with some children doing hypnotherapy and um i told him about chase's phobia and he said well let's let's try a little experiment and chase agreed that he would like to do that because he didn't like that feeling at all Uh around the loud noises so norman said to chase close your eyes and sit on your mom's lap and tell me what you see when you hear the loud sounds that frighten you and i immediately i saw chase's eyelids fluttering as if he were seeing something and he said I'm a soldier I'm crouching behind a rock I have a long gun with a sword at the end there's smoke everywhere I don't even know what I'm shooting at and at this point it's like wait a minute what is going on here and Norman kept going he was not 
put off by this at all. And he kept saying, well, what's happening? And he said, I, I don't want to be there shooting other people. And he hmm. said, all of a sudden he's hit on his wrist and he grabbed his wrist and he said, um, I, I'm injured. I, he, I'm hurt. They take, I'm shot in the wrist. They take me out. They take me to this place. It's, um, uh, I'm on a hard wooden bench and it's, kind of a, a tent with covering on top and big poles and they they bandage my wrist and they make me go back into battle I don't want to go I don't want to shoot other people I don't want to hmm. kill anyone and um, at this now, point, did, did you know at that point that he was a black soldier did he say that no I didn't know what was going on at all uh -huh. I was in shock I was going what <laughs> you know where's this coming from no I had no idea but Norman kind of sensed he he was just following Chase and asking uh -huh. open-ended questions and um, he said that you know they bandaged my wrist I have to go back to battle I don't want to be there and at that point Norman kind of picked up on the fact that this could be a past life memory because it didn't jive with anything in his present life. And he, he described it as someone in battle would have described it, not as uh -huh. a five-year-old who had not been exposed to any war movies or, you know, anything beyond Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. Uh, Carol, did uh, Norman, had he done past life regressions up to that point? Oh, yeah, yeah. he was very skilled, yeah. Okay, yeah. And he had regressed me and a number of my friends at that point. So um, he said to Chase, he was picking up on Chase's discomfort, and he said he explained to him in very simple language, um, sometimes we'll, we play different roles in different, we have different lifetimes, we play different roles. Sometimes we have to be soldiers, and as soldiers we have to kill people or we have to be killed, but there's no blame in it. And I, I'm thinking, wow, what is, you know, is Chase going to get this? And he, I could feel his body. He was sitting on my lap, and I could feel his body relaxing. And he said, well, they make me go back into ba battle, and I miss my wife and family. Wow. And this was the moment where I'm going, oh, my, you know, this this is something totally different. You know, I had no idea children could remember previous lives. But when he mentioned his wife and children that was the moment mm. you know i've got the the hair raising on my arms yeah. and my neck and i thought okay this is this is amazing i don't know what's happening but norman was very confident and he led chase and chase said well i'm going back to battle there's um there are chickens on the road it's dusty <laughs> there are chickens on the road i see a, a cannon pulled on a big a wagon with big wheels pulled by horses they make me go behind the can, and I don't want to do it. And then he kind of jumped off my lap, and Chase ran off to play with his Legos. And my daughter, Sarah, who was three years older than Chase, was sitting at the table with this. This happened around the kitchen table. She was watching this, observing this. And she said, Mom, that place where Chase was shot on his wrist, that's where he has his eczema. And Chase had had a persistent a chronic eczema since he was nine, about nine months old on that spot on his wrist, which mm. had not responded to any medical treatment. And we tried food elimination, uh, antibiotic salves, homeopathy, all mm -hmm. kinds of things. And it, the, the rash was so, the eczema was so persistent that I had to bandage Jeez. his wrist at night. Um, so he wouldn't bloody the sheets. Mm. And, um, 
the upshot of all this was that after that, you know, 15, 20 minute uh, recollection by Chase, his chronic eczema went away within a few wow. days. That's incredible. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. That you, it's fascinating that you wrapped it up just like uh, exactly. that had happened to him in the past life. Wow. Exactly. When he was in this, what he described was a, f a field hospital. Wow. I didn't know that at the time, but you know, he described <clears throat> a tent-like structure. Mm -hmm. Yes, he. I had bandaged the same wrist every night as they had bandaged hmm. his injury in the field hospital. And um, not only did his eczema go away, uh, but soon after that, he asked for his first drum kit and started making huh. all the booming sounds all the time. And he is a drummer, <laughs> kind of a sideline at this point. Um, so that was really what started me on my research of children's past life memories. And the fact because, that his eczema healed is what mm -hmm. triggered the healing for you. I mean, the healing aspect of what you do. Yes, because I thought, what are the implications for other children who had phobias that, that parents couldn't explain? And not only did it cure the, the phobia of loud booming sounds, but it was that that chronic problem that had uh -huh. been resolved. And, you know, that kind of blew my mind. Yeah, good reason. So that, did did yeah. he ever give you a name of who he was? No. Okay. But um, when we did the Oprah show in 1994, um, she hired a Civil War historian. Oh, wow. Oh, well, yeah, he, there's more to this story. I'll back up a little bit. Um he hadn't talked about the memory um, after that one session with Norman and we were moving to Pennsylvania at that point from North Carolina. So we were really busy. We didn't talk about it, but about, uh, I don't know, nine, 10 months later, we were sitting eating breakfast alone together and he was eating his cereal. And he said, mom, remember when I told you I was a soldier and <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, I perked right up. I said, yes. <clears throat> and he said, well, I talk differently. And I said, well, how did hmm. you talk? He said, I was black. Huh. I was a black soldier. And it was, I think, his first exposure to, you know, we lived in a very diverse community in Pennsylvania, unlike mm -hmm. Asheville. And, it was, and he said he was a black soldier. And coincidentally... <laughs> That day, um, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, he couldn't read that point. You know, I picked it up after right. he left for school. There was an article about black Civil War soldiers. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't say anything after that. You know, I didn't want to feed him any right. anything, um, as, you know, as far as prompting him. But within another year, he didn't bring it up after that until – uh, the first Desert Storm hmm. War, so that was, what, 91? Yeah. Um, he was seven. He was in second grade, and he came home from school. I picked him up to school, and he was very upset. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, they're putting yellow ribbons all over the school. He said, my memory's coming up, the one I had with Norm. He oh, said, people don't understand what war is. It's a terrible place. So at this hmm. point, I had trained in past life therapy, and I asked Chase if he wanted to explore that a little more, and he said yes. So I had him relax on my bed, and I said, close your eyes and go back to that lifetime again. And he did very 
same wow. detail as they had two two years before, which you know anyone who knows young children that was pretty amazing that yeah. the consistency of detail was there, and he he went more deeply into the experience than he did the first time, and he said um, he talked about his wife and family, and he talked about volunteering. He said he was a free black man. Huh. And he said it's 1860 something. So, you know, that narrowed it down to the American Civil War. And, right. and again, he described the artillery. And um, he actually, this time when he went back, he remembered dying. The first time he Jeez. just remembered going back behind a cannon. Mm-hmm. And he was reluctant to do that. But this time he remembered dying. And he talked about how he was behind the cannon. And the next thing he knew, he was looking battlefield and it was smoky and he said i'm so glad to be out of that life it's a relief Jeez. um and i said well what, you know what did you learn about that and he said well first of all i have to go back and say goodbye to my wife and family i never got to say goodbye mm. and he said in spirit you can move around freely and i we don't use those words yeah, that's interesting and, wow yeah and he was he said he he described moving up very quickly after the death. You know, he was looking down at the battlefield and, um, you know, he didn't know anything about near-death experiences or what it's like to die, but he was describing it. And then he said, um, everybody has to be in a war. It teaches you how other people feel. It's a bad place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is very profound coming from a (laughs) seven-year-old. Yeah, so... um, Was Sarah, did she hear this too? No, she was no, not okay. there at the time, but, uh-huh. you know, I took notes that time. You know, I had a pad with me so I could take mm-hmm. notes to see, because I knew we were prompting him. I was prompting him to remember again, so I wanted to record what he right. was saying. Um, so, you know, he was fine after that. You know, he seemed to to be have some resolution on that life, and his life as a soldier. And he had this other, you know, higher perspective, which... Yeah, you don't think incredible. of seven-year-olds right. having that capacity, but they do. <laughs> you know, you, they're souls you, in a seven-year-old body. Yeah. Uh, Carol, were you doing regressions with other people or other children by that time? I had just started working with adults. Okay. You know, I had I, in that interim period from moving from Asheville, I started training um, with Norman and hypnotherapy training and with Roger Wolger, who... Uh-huh. Um, was kind of a master past life therapist. So um, I was familiar with the territory. And at that point, I started, you know, informal research, which I actually had started in Asheville, just talking to other parents, asking Uh if they had these experiences with their children. And and I got, you know, little stories from them. Oh, yeah, my daughter was playing one day and she started crying. And the mother said, well, what's wrong? She said, I miss my children who died in the flood. Jeez. And a little, little like that, you know, that you don't forget. So I, I was beginning to think that this is really a common occurrence for little children to oh, remember geez. past lives. So that's when, it, right after Chase and Sarah's early experiences, I'm not going to talk about Sarah's today, but uh-huh. um, she also had a, a, a phobia relating to fire, which was healed cured mm. after she remembered dying as in a house fire as a child. And I talk about her story in my book. Yeah, that's really So anyway, that was the beginning of my research, but 
you know, I was, what do I do with this information? I was looking in books, trying to find other people who could comment on this and the healing abil- ability of these past life memories, you know, as, as healing opportunities. <clears throat> and I couldn't find anything, but I did find a lot of references to Dr. Ian Stevenson uh-huh. at the University of Virginia. And Well, he was the only guy really doing that kind of research then. Exactly. And he started in the 60s uh-huh. investigating children's spontaneous past life memories around the world, he found a lot of cases in Asia, Uh especially in India. And he had colleagues around the world who would um, bring cases to his attention in in India and other places. If a child had a past life memory, since it was was something they believed in as Hindus, you know, that Uh we reincarnate, they would publish uh, extraordinary cases of children remembering in newspapers and professors in India would alert Dr. Stevenson and he Mm. would investigate the cases. And he, over his 40 plus years as a researcher of this phenomenon, he documented about 2,700 cases and about eight, in about 800 cases, they could identify who the past life person, who the child was in his previous life. And he could match up statements the present child made about the other life and confirm that this was related to a specific person who died before the child was born. But his focus was on documenting the cases, not not on healing, right? Exactly. Uh But what he found um, in analyzing the data was that there are certain patterns to these memories. And one very clear pattern is that very young children can have these memories up until the ages of five to seven, at which time the memories fade. And he also found that um, more than half the children, and I would, I would say at this point, a lot more than half the children remember dying in a previous life. Wow. And yeah, and a lot of those children had traumatic deaths. Hmm. And, you know, I can't give you a percentage, but he. Right. It, it's quite high that a lot of these memories involve traumatic deaths, and um, and the children would have fo- present child would have phobias relating to the way they died in the past, uh-huh. just like Chase's battlefield memory. Now, so, um, I had a yeah. question. I remember you telling me that when Chase turned eighteen and had to register for the draft or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> and the eczema one. came back. Yes. So um, Chase went to, um, I live in the Philadelphia area. Chase went to Temple University, which is in Philly. So I got to see him on some weekends. And one weekend, I think it was freshman year, he came home. He said, Mom, my eczema's back. And my first reaction was, oh, no. (laughs) You know, after I wrote the book and said his eczema cleared up and, you know, went on Oprah and told 22 million people that his eczema went away. And, and I said, Chase, what's going on? And he, he stood there thinking for a minute, and he said, oh, I had to register for the draft. Something uh, about his loans. I was shocked. I didn't know he had to do that. Hmm. And after he said that, it was like, mm, it went away again. And now he's 37, <laughs> and it has not recurred. You know, it, hmm. it, it seems to be healed, and hopefully it won't emerge again. But clearly, even the thought of having to sign Jeez. up for the draft brought the physical, the body memory back in the eczema. Oh. 
Huh. Yeah, that was another. Yeah, that's kind of if if and when I write another book, I will add that um, the epilogue to the story. Yeah, really. Because that, I mean, the, the body memory is as significant as any statements sure. a child makes or any behaviors they have relating to previous lives. So hmm. what I've found from, you know, 30 plus years of research is that these memories can be healing opportunities for the soul. Huh. You know, they come up for a reason because the trauma works, the tra- past life trauma works in the same way as present life trauma. If it's not talked about, if it's not expressed and mm-hmm. processed, it, it just keeps um, popping up. It gets triggered. Mm-hmm. So in Chase's case, even though a lot of the emotional memory went away by age 18, he still had the body memory, but that seems to have resolved at this point. Uh-huh. Too. So, well, um, t- how did you get involved in the James Leininger case? I can't remember. Okay. Um, and I, I remember it was, I think it was 2001. James was about two and a half, three. Um, his, his mother, Andrea, emailed me. And um, she uh, was a mother from Louisiana, and she was talking about her, I think he was two and a half when she contacted me about her son, James, who would wake up five times a week screaming. He mm. would have nightmares saying, um, little man can, can't get out of the plane. Um, oh, and he talked about the plane crashing, and he would kind of push his legs and kick his legs and push his arms out, and he was clearly having nightmares. And um, interestingly, along with that, he was had always been obsessed with airplanes. And Andrew said anytime they went to a store, if there was a toy airplane there, he would have, he would insist that she buy it. I guess he would have a little fits until she bought it. <laughs> so, um, Were they always World War II planes? Um, pretty it? much. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it, it, yeah. I mean, a lot of model planes are World War II right. for some reason. But um, so, her mother, Andrea's mother, uh, somehow found out about my book and sent it to Andrea, and she started using some of the techniques I describe in children's past lives to talk a child through a traumatic memory. And um, she said that, um, I'm trying to think, oh, she said that after she talked him through, you know, engaged in his reality, uh-huh. you know, you know what happened um, plane crashed. I couldn't get out. Um, and she would talk him through the, the nightmares. And she said, you know, the, the nightmares went down from like five times a week to one every two weeks. Hmm. And he started talking more about his life as a pilot. And, um, they and were his name cautious. was James then also. Well, he, well that came up later. Uh-huh. He, um, he started, they, they asked him, well, you know, where did, where did your plane take off from? And he would say a boat. Hmm. And do you remember the name of the boat? Natoma. And they said something like, I think at that point she said, um, they say, well, were you Japanese? He said, no, American. So Hmm. Bruce, who 
did not want to believe any of this, that it could be a past life memory, started doing research, and he found there was an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, an American aircraft carrier. Bruce was his dad. Bay. What? Bruce was his dad. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah, his dad. Yeah. Um, and other details, they say, well, what kind of plane did you fly? And he, he, he said a Corsair. He would insist Jeez. it was a Corsair. They didn't know what a Corsair was, but it was actually a plane that used to take off of aircraft carriers. And he would mm. say things like, oh, and it would always have a flat tire when I landed. <laughs> yeah, he was talking in the first person, which a lot of these kids do. They switch to first person when they talk about their previous lives. So anyway, the case kept developing, and um, they they would just wait until he brought it up, mm-hmm. and you know he would he would say things. Well, anyway, during this period, she sent me an email telling me these things, and um, my first reaction is, well, you know, great, you can talk him through the nightmares, and. You know, there's nothing to follow up with. She was doing a good job. And um, I told her just to, you know, let me know if you find out anything more. Uh During that period, um, somebody called me, a producer from ABC Primetime, who is uh, a lovely Indian woman who wanted to do a reincarnation case because, you know, she was a Hindu and she wanted Uh to expose American, American audience to some of these cases. So that was how... She became involved with this case. Her name is Shalini Sharma. And um, we did a taping. And at that point, there was they had no idea who James could have been in a previous life. But another quirky thing that he did was he was obsessed with doing drawings of uh, planes being shot down from the sky. Jeez. And huh. in the drawings, they were always hitting the propeller. And he had a boat, you know, that took off uh-huh. a boat. And um, he would always sign his drawings, you know, in his like three or four year old. I don't even think he was four then, but he could, you know, sort of scratch out his name. He would write James three. Hmm. He would always say James three. And his parents would say, why do you write James three? And he said, I'm the third James. Wow. So, huh. so we did this taping um, for ABC in Louisiana and um, they ended up putting it on the shelf. They didn't use it. So during why not? Because it wasn't. It couldn't be substantiated. It couldn't be okay. verified. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it was kind of weak at that point. But during that interim period, before they became interested again, um, Bruce, the father, found that there was a group of veterans from the Natoma Bay who met. Mm occasionally for a reunion and he went to one of the reunions under the guise of writing a book about the Natoma Bay. Uh-huh. He didn't want to tell him what was really going on. <laughs> oh, and another thing that, uh, there's so many details. They, they wrote their own book called soul survivor where all the details are. Yeah. You wrote the foreword about, yeah. So, um, one of the things that he did say when they asked him, do you remember anyone else on the boat with you? And he said, yeah, Jack Larson. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. Specific. It gets freakier and freakier. So Bruce went to a, a, um, a reunion of the Notoma Bay survivors, and they found out there was someone by the name of Jack Larson, who was on the boat. And um, J- Bruce did more digging and found out there was someone who died in 
oh, one more detail. There's so many details, but one detail <laughs> that um, is still Bruce was trying to disprove it. <laughs> uh-huh. He was trying to find fault with his, James's memories because of his religious beliefs. He didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh, one one day Bruce had gotten Bruce was interested in World War II after James started talking about <laughs> it. And I guess he got a book about uh, sea battles. I think that was what the book was about, but I'm not sure. But uh-huh. he was looking at it one day, and um, James looked over his shoulder, and there was an aerial shot of Iwo Jima. And he said, Dad, that's where my plane went down. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh. So that was that was the goosebumps moment that Bruce yeah. had that in which he became a believer. <laughs> Gee. <laughs> yeah, right. It took, it took, like, dynamite to blast him out of his uh, former beliefs. But um, anyway, so he he did find out there was um, a Jack Larson who was on the Natoma Bay, and uh, he did find out there was one person shot down on a mission hmm. ab- above near Iwo Jima, and his name was James Houston Jr. Oh wow! Yeah, so uh, he was right about James three. He yeah. was the third James, and um, Andrea, who was a very good researcher, uh, was found out that James Houston Jr. had a surviving sister who lived in California. And again, under the guise of writing a book about the Natoma Bay and uh-huh. the veterans, um, she contacted um, Ruth, I think, oh boy, I'm thinking, Ruth Barron, I think that's uh-huh. her name, her first Another name. Uh, and, the widow. Um, yeah, the, well, she she was the sister the of sister. James Houston and um, she uh, was very helpful in talking about her brother and his death. And um, Andrea didn't tell her what was going on, but just wanted information. Mm-hmm. And um, so when ABC did another program a year after they shelved the first, all of these details had come out oh, and they were, and, and Bruce and Andrew were able, were able to re, to corroborate a lot of the details that James talked about mm-hmm. being on a Corsair, flying a Corsair, the Natoma Bay, Jack Larson, um, the way he died, he, you know, he was shot down in his plane. Um, so they were, they were going to air, this program and uh, you know it's a good thing they waited because it was a much stronger case once they uh-huh. were able to identify who James had been and corroborate some of these de- details so uh we were talking on the, Andrew and I were talking on the phone and I said have have you told Ann Barron what's oh her name is Ann Barron what's mm-hmm. going on and she said no I said you better because if she turns on the TV she's going to have a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> Good so, point. so yeah, James, I mean, I said you can't do that. James hadn't met so, her then. What? James hadn't met Anne and the sister. No, no, oh. no. He he didn't know, but he started talking more about his family life. He was yeah. only 21 when he died. He was talking about his sister. He talked about some portraits that had been painted of the two of them, hmm. and um, a lot of personal details. Anyway, so Andrea found that uh, Ann Barron had a, a daughter and she contacted her and talked to her and and told her what was going on. So she 
waited until the daughter was with Aunt, Aunt Barron to tell her the news. And mm-hmm. I guess one of her remarks was that she was very open to this because she said the day that her brother died, before she even got the notice or the telegram, whatever, however she was notified, um, she had seen an apparition of him in her apartment in, oh, I think in San Francisco. Wow. <clears throat> so there was already this kind of paranormal right. aspect of yeah. his death where she saw him. Well, they met, she, didn't they? Eventually. Yeah, well, eventually, after all this was out in the open, um, Bruce took little James, he was like four or five at the time, he was still young, to a reunion in the Natoma Bay Survivors, oh and he he met Jack Larson, hmm. and um, there's a, a photograph of him with Jack Larson with the biggest smile on his face, you know, uh-huh. two buddies getting back together, and there's this wonderful... A photograph of him with his past life sister and Baron. God, <laughs> you know this is stranger than fiction. Oh, it really is. I mean, if it's you wrote better. this fiction, it wouldn't get published. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, it would be too contrived. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so, but uh, there was another great uh, aspect to this that I I like to talk about when <laughs> when I went to do a, a taping before they finally aired that segment, you know, redid it. Uh-huh. Um, I went to New York and Chris Cuomo interviewed me and he was such a skeptic, you know, it was like, really? it was, yeah, it was like a hard driving interview, you know, totally inappropriate for the material, but um, he, he was kind of rude. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he, after he interviewed me in New York, he went down to Louisiana and t- interviewed the Liningers. Oh, Interesting. And this is straight out of the Twilight Zone. So he was still skeptical. <laughs> and um, he, during the interview, the doorbell rang. <laughs> and there was a package from Ann Barron containing some effects from oh James Houston's <laughs> locker on the boat. You know, his, his, his possessions that they sent back to the family. They opened it, and in it was a model of a Corsair hmm. and a bust of George Washington. My God, what a synchronicity. And, and James, yeah, I know. James immediately took the bust of George Washington and ran in his room and put it on his desk. Hmm. And um, he was absolutely thrilled with the model of the Corsair, which is, you know, it's kind of the yeah. button on the story. And um, Anne Barron said that after they received the package, I guess they communicated with her, and she said he all that her brother always kept that bust of George Washington on his desk. Jeez. <laughs> well, did Chris Cuomo become a believer? <laughs> yeah, well, you can see his mouth hanging open. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, I think his mind was completely blown by that. That was it. You know, I mean, what? You know what tangible evidence do you need or confirmation? Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an amazing that, case. Yeah, that that's incredible. I remember some of these details, but not all mm-hmm. of them. It's just right. I don't even remember all of them because there were so many. You know, I have to go through the book again to just so many little details that he remembered. Such a clear memory, and he actually got to. Um, go to the site where James Houston's plane went down. They, he uh, mm-hmm. 
Japanese TV crew picked up on the story and uh, well, paid I've, for the Liningers to go to Japan, and they had a kind of a, a farewell ceremony with James and the boat. A closure. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, I remember my dad was in an assisted living facility when this first aired. I said, Dad, you got to watch this. He watched it, and by the end of the show, he was crying. He says, that is the most convincing evidence I've ever seen about reincarnation. And I, I honestly think, Carol, that that's what helped him release his hold on life. He died four oh, months yeah. later. Yeah. Well, it's a very compelling story. And, you know, when it's coming from a two-, three-, or four-year-old, it's kind of hard to write it off when there's so much yeah. information. And it seemed like there was just one synchronicity after another. Yeah, because huh. I, I believe that case needed to get out into the public. Well, do you think, think that it, was part of his sole script for this life? Yeah, I do. Yeah. The way just, it unfolded, too, because his father was a complete skeptic, which made it even more compelling. He didn't want to believe it. Hmm. But the evidence was overwhelming. Yeah, Carol, what do you know about that uh, case in Israel that's on uh, YouTube showing a three-year-old boy who started speaking English, uh, even though his parents don't speak the language? Uh, is that oh, yeah. I sent that to her. Yeah, is that case under investigation? <clears throat> well, um, it should be. If I had the funds, I would go there myself with a <laughs> yeah. film crew and an interpreter and and interview the boy and ask him more specific questions. Yeah. In fact, I have um, a translation of some of that. It, the, the documentary, it's a little documentary. It was a news piece in Israel and it's in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I have a, a, an Israeli brother-in-law who um, I have notes. I just got yesterday from my sister um, talking more about the case. And oh, did you send it to her little too? boy? Pardon me. You sent uh, Barb that that video. Yeah, and uh, she showed it to Itzhak, and she took notes. Um, oh, he great. was translating it. Yeah, it's, it's totally in uh, it's totally in Hebrew, except when the kid talks in English. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, let me give you a little background. What I got from the translation, and I, this case is amazing. Somebody needs to investigate it, which I will talk about more in a moment. But this little boy was born in northern Israel. And for the first two years of his life, he didn't talk. Hmm. And everyone around him, it's a small village. Everyone spoke Arabic. So they were a little concerned. I think they took him to a psychologist or a nurse because he wasn't talking. And then I guess after two years, he started talking, but it was in American English. <laughs> God. The family... The community, they had no idea what language he was speaking. Hmm. And um, he was extremely articulate. And it, um, you can yeah, tell from Yeah, a YouTube video you can listen to. I mean, he is articulate. It's amazing. And it's, yeah. he sounds like a little American boy. Yeah, he so does. When they, when they did the documentary, he was, or the news piece, whatever it is, he was three years old. Oh, he started talking at two and a half. And um, his parents didn't understand a word he said, and he wouldn't. He didn't speak in Arabic. He's part of a. It was a Duzan. Druze. 
Oh, okay. Dru- yeah. A Druze community. And uh-huh. actually, they believe in reincarnation. I think it's a Christian sect. I'm not sure. They have their own particular dialect, too. Yeah, so he and he started speaking in the vocabulary with a vocabulary of an adult. Not if you listen to him, he's extremely articulate. Yeah, he is. And um, he could. They'd show him a picture book, and he would name the images in the book. Some complicated stuff like a a flashlight or something. I don't remember what it was, but he could name <clears throat> things. And um, when they this news team heard about it, they took an interpreter with them and they interviewed a psychologist and someone, a nurse, I think, and psychologist who they said there, the only explanation could be reincarnation because there was absolutely <laughs> no exposure to English. Wow. Incredible. So, you know, it needs further investigation. I want to know. And maybe we won't know now because he's a little older. He's five now. And he's right at the point of not, if he had any past life memories, he might be forgetting them because Uh children usually do around that age. Mm -hmm. But I would love to know, how did you learn how to speak English? Do you remember speaking English before you were here? You Uh know, there are ways of asking him open-ended questions. Exactly. You know, he might say, well, yeah, I was in California and I got in a car accident or something. You know, we don't know. Yeah, you don't get that from that YouTube at all. Uh, the the connection with the past life is just a strange thing that he speaks English. <laughs> yeah, the guy who showed us this is yeah. an Israeli man who used to be a pilot, commercial pilot for an Israeli airline. Al lives in uh, South Florida. And he goes, Trish, Rob, you got to see this. And he shows us the video and then he, he and he speaks Hebrew. So he started translating it for us. And then we got interrupted. So that's when I sent it to you. I thought this is incredible. Yeah. Well, it just happens that I, you know, I could get a translation, but I would love to go over with a uh, yeah. videographer or uh, director of photography, son, and have him film right. that, yeah. and, you know, get an interpreter in there and just, See if I would talk to him in English. They were uh-huh. they were speaking Hebrew. Yeah. So they were um, one of the guys who interviewed you, who did the documentary that little piece. He um he spoke some English, but the little child spoke much better English. Yeah, right. Than he did. <laughs> but it's crazy. But yeah. it, it there is a phenomenon. It's um, called xenoglossy when people speak in an unlearned language, and there. Are, a few cases I've read about Ian Stevenson um, investigated, but this is way beyond anything I've ever heard of. Yeah. Because, it, you know, the control is, you know, if you're doing an experiment, no one around him understood English. Yeah. They didn't even know he was speaking English. Yeah. And how do, you, how do you communicate with your parents? Hey, I have to go to the bathroom or, you know, I mean. I don't know. And he seems to not be able to learn Arabic. He can't speak Arabic. Yeah. Yeah, which is really weird because that's what he's exposed to. Yeah, yeah, it's very strange. So I don't. I'd love to someone to investigate. In fact, when I first heard about it, it was over a year ago. I think it was shortly after it came out. I don't remember how I heard about it. Um, but I contacted Dr. Haraldson in Iceland, who has done other research investigating cases in the Druze community in Israel and Lebanon. I think. And so he is familiar with the culture, and I, I 
corresponded with him and I said, do you know about this case and can you investigate it? He's, um, he said he's not traveling that much anymore. I think he's, oh, that's um, a shame. he's yeah. getting, getting on in age and it, um, and you even have a videographer in the family. This would be <laughs> yeah. ideal. Yeah, it's just you know what it would involve to you know but, finance a trip to Israel and you know for two people and. Mm -hmm. Have you have you it, been there before? Pardon me. Have you been to Israel? No. Mm -mm. Okay. I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might happen in this life or not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So what do you know about your own past lives? Were you able to self hypnosis or? Uh, to past lives, is that possible? It well, um, some adults can have spontaneous recollections. Mm -hmm. I had, I started having. I didn't know this until I was adult. I was having dreams of myself from my previous life, and it does come up in dreams in children too. Mm -hmm. They can dream about their previous lives, and so can adults. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I did have um, recurring dreams as a child of this woman in nineteen. 40s style clothing walking down this wide boulevard and it um i always looked for that boulevard you know it was not like an american street it was uh -huh. much wider and i used to look for it when i traveled when i was a child and going to new york city or whatever city i didn't go to too many cities as a child but um it wasn't until i did my first regression in my late 30s that i realized that I was that woman in my previous life and that mm. was a big traumatic life that was um, Germany in World War II uh -huh. it was in Vienna and then oh, the concentration camp but um yeah was so that what Norman dreams. Helped, is that what mm? Norman helped you heal yeah that was the big one uh -huh. that was the cause of my chronic lung problems or one of the causes anyway so after I remember dying in that very traumatic way and crying a lot my lung, my lungs started clearing up. Hmm. So that's why I got into this work in the first place. It was through my own healing. Uh -huh. And um, so, yeah, well, it's hard to do regression work, self-regression, mm -hmm. because if you're really going to do it therapeutically, 98% um, of my work involves going back to a traumatic death to release the negative patterning, the emotional patterning. And it's very hard to do that by yourself. So you, know, when you, you might get a snippet of a past life, but you're not going to be able to process the whole thing yeah. by yourself. So, Carol, when, when somebody comes to you, I know you interview them mm -hmm. first. Is this so that you know where to begin the regression? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at the dominant patterns, the dominant emotional patterns in a person's life or, you know, a chronic physical ailment. But mm -hmm. usually that is that has emotions tied to it. So right. we're looking at dominant patterns, even patterns you could attribute to present life, you know, like abandonment issues, for example, right. someone's <clears throat> father left the family when they were three or a parent died when they were five. Even if they have abandonment issues that stem from experience in this life, there's usually a backstory. Uh -huh. You know, we these patterns get carried forward from previous lives, and they show up in this life. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of I'm doing my little detective work when I interview. I spend mm -hmm. the first hour of a session just getting a history and finding out where the charged patterns are, and we focus on one of them.
Huh. And your your sessions last about three hours or so. Yeah. Mm. Usually at least three hours. Yeah. They're long. I can only do one a day. Yeah. So, do you ever run into people who you just can't hypnotize that just won't go back to a past life? Um, I used to. Honestly, <laughs> I, I well, you know, just having been doing this for so long, I'm getting better at screening prospective right. clients. <clears throat> so if I feel that you know my methods aren't going to work for them, I will tell them that I don't think my methods would be appropriate. But uh, I'm getting a lot more picky about who I work with. Mm -hmm. So, so um, now yeah, getting, you're, you're teaching these methods. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Once to your uh -huh. Um. Yeah. I, I I have a training coming up in April, and I hope <laughs> I hope people can come. Yeah, it's a little dicey right now because we just got our first case of the coronavirus here in in Pennsylvania in my community what? but she's in self quarantine so hopefully is it somebody you know spread. I, they don't reveal the name oh that's right yeah mm -hmm. so do you ever run into people who are like uh, terrible criminals in their past life oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's not all it's it's not um, all unicorns and rainbows, by right, any, yeah. you know, it's, there's a lot of nitty gritty, deep, dark, emotional stuff that comes up, mm -hmm. you know, it can be, you know, guilt carried over or sadness or grief or, right. Anger. you know, and all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of emotions. Um, but you know, there's some positive memories that come up too, and they come up for a reason too, you know, that, there's there's yeah. something that needs to be activated from them, but the therapy work is really with the negative patterns. Uh, you know, yeah. they have chronic illness or just incredible sadness, depression, anxiety. It works for a lot of different hmm. emotional hmm. issues. Yeah. What do you think of uh, psychics or mediums who do past life readings? Is that legitimate or? It depends on the psychic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I know. I mean, it's really interesting because I, it, when people say, well, I had a psychic reading and, you know, I'll say, well, um, just leave it at the door and let's try <laughs> this method. If, if this comes up, it was a good reading. You know, if this, if somebody, yeah, there are people who can accurately read, but okay. I take it with a grain of salt because I don't know whether it's accurate or not. Right. Yeah. I've had... But I, I've had three past life readings from mediums or psychics, and they all come up with the same life where I was a big landowner in uh, in Spain near the border of uh, France, and I burned down a, a convent. It's not a nice of, guy. <laughs> with a bunch of nuns. Why did you burn down a convent? I don't know, but when I was a kid dealing with, in, uh, as a Catholic, the nuns were really mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, that's interesting. Well, you know, if they're all coming up with the same thing, maybe there's something to it, right? You know, the, the nuns were doing something strange there. They were going into, you know, conniption fits or something very strange. Uh, and I wanted them off my land. There was some <laughs> that's story. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And your whole like Carol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that I don't know. No comment. <laughs> that's pretty um, interesting, though. Carol, in your second book, um, Return from Heaven, you talk about how common it is for relatives to reincarnate within the same family. 
And what I found stunning about this book is it's not just behaviors and memories that move from life to life, but physical evidence too, like, you know, Chase's eczema, for instance, mm-hmm. and then it clears up. So how does, how do you, I know one of your cases with Ian Stevenson involved this child in Chicago. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. That's Chad, one. Of, that's Chad a strange. Well, not really. No? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, well, I mean, when it, I read it, it, it was strange. stunning. It just stunned me. Yeah, it's yeah. a stunning case because, um, yeah, I, um, actually, a woman emailed me. Boy, it must have been around like 1999. It was after the my first book came out, and uh, you know, I'm not going to write another book. It's too hard. You know, well, <laughs> this woman. <laughs> um, I'm talking to some, you know, a couple who's written what had 70 books. I'm a wimp. So. <laughs> Um, a friend of hers, of, of this woman, Kathy Luke, her friend emailed me and said, I have a friend who would like to talk to you about her son who died and she thinks he's back. So I said, well, have her call me. So, um, Kathy Luke called me and, um, she was a little red- reticent to say anything. <laughs> you know, she was holding back a bit, but I, I got her talking. She said she had a son who died of neuroblastoma when he was uh, about two, two and a half, 22 months, I think he was. God. Um, and at the time of his death, he had tumors in his left leg. He had a large tumor behind his left eye. He had a big tumor behind his right ear. Um, she was a single mom at the time, and she, you know, he was hospitalized. And they put in, um, they did what they could. And at some mm-hmm. point they said, you know, we can't do any more. And she took him home. And right before he died, he was just, I guess, barely talking. He said, Mama, don't cry for me. Um, so Kathy kind of bottled it up, you know, and which is not mm-hmm. the best thing. But she carried on. She was young. She met a wonderful man and married him and had two children and then she was delivering her would have been her fourth child her third living child and um at, she had a um a c-section and right after the c-section the doctors some doctors came in the room and said we have some bad news and immediately she thought oh no after losing a child that's where yeah. you go and, and they said well it appears he's blind in his left eye oh it's God. opaque and she hmm. said, just bring me my son. And she named this little boy Chad. The first child's name was James, mm-hmm. the one who died. Um, and when they brought Chad to her, she could see that his, the left side of his cheek was distended. And you know he had this opacity in his left eye. And he had what looked like a tumor behind his right ear. And they, the doctor said, oh, that's just a cyst, a functional cyst. It should go away. But when she saw his neck, there was like, um, it looked like a surgical scar on the left side of his neck hmm. where James had had the IV inserted in the hospital. Wow. So in that yeah, moment, she, she held this child and she said, you know, when you have a child who dies and you have subsequent children, there's something in you that looks for the right. essence of that child and the new child. And she said, 
in that moment, she felt it was felt similar to James, and she had had two children, other children since James's death. So um, she was raised in a very fundamentalist Christian background, and she was afraid to say anything to any of her relatives. And um, but at age four. Um, I think he was three and a half, four. He said to Kathy, just out of the blue, he said, uh, he described the apartment that he, she had lived in with James. You know, she just, he described the brown brick or the brown furniture uh-huh. and, and described toys that James had, which he didn't presently have. And um, he said, I want to go back there. And she asked, why do you want to go back there? You know, I'm sure she was in shock like any mother who experiences <laughs> yeah. this. And he said, because I left, because I left you there. Mm. So this started developing. He would say things. Little Chad would say things. At one point he said to his brother, his older brother, um, I was sick before and I died and now I came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, what's remarkable is this physical... Evidence, though, the scar on the side of his neck from where right. the IV was, the, the right. opacity in his eye were behind right. Which the same eye where he had the tumor. Oh. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's... This couldn't be hereditary. No. Because they were, you know, because they were due to surgery or to a disease. So it's not... He had the remnants. Yeah, the residue. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I talked mm-hmm. to Kathy and I said, well, you know, it's very possible this is... Your son, he's now back in a new body. And she was most concerned about the fact that he was kind of, I guess, nearly blind or blind in his left eye. And she was wondering if that could heal. And I said, maybe. I don't know. You know, it's possible, I guess. And um, I said, but you need to talk to him and let him know that you know what happened. Because she was holding back. She didn't know what to do with this. That's why she contacted me, and I said, well, you know, at some point you just need to sit him down, you know, when you're alone, and just tell him, yes, you were here before, but you're now back in a new body. You're safe. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. you you have a healthy body this time, because a lot of kids are confused, be, you know, what happened in the right. past and what's in the present, and they often speak in the first person from the past life perspective. You know, it's it's not they it's me right you know it's really so um and i found that one thing that helps children is to clarify to them that they're not longer in that life anymore Uh this is a different life especially from coming from a traumatic life so um she did she did that she talked to um chad and she felt more settled in her grieving process, she said that she felt after that she didn't have to go to the cemetery as often. Hmm. And, you know, she believed it. You know, it was yeah. coming to belief. You know, that's kind of the process. You know, you start out like shocked, but then, you know, gradually you can accept that, that this is true. Right. Um. So I had met Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, his... Uh, who became his successor after Dr. Stevenson died, successor to the research. Um, I had met them in, I think it was 1998, after my first book came out. And um, 
I contacted them because I thought that Ian Stevenson would be very interested in the birthmarks and the birth defects right. relating to the past life because that he wrote um, a tome on called Reincarnation and Biology about uh-huh. birthmarks and birth defects carrying over into the new body, like Chase's eczema, like right. these incredible, you know, beyond coincidence birthmarks and birth defect. Mm-hmm. So we did. Um, I went out to the Chicago area with them and, you know, just watched Ian Stevenson at work. And he investigated another one of my cases, which he dismissed, but I didn't. Because he's looking for verifiable facts. And, you know, those those cases are so rare that I'd say 99.9% of children's cases cannot be verified because they don't Mm. remember enough specific detail, especially in Western culture. It seems mm. like the cases and cultures in which they believe in reincarnation right. are much more detailed than, say, American cases. Because I think there's a lot the kids have to break through psychically, to, you know, to. But even though the parents the, are open, even yeah. though Chad had these marks and was blind mm-hmm. in his, Stevenson didn't consider that to be verifiable. Yeah, that was verifiable. Um, but he would never go so far to say, this is a case of reincarnation. Oh, oh I see. Yeah. Hesitant hmm. to say that, which, I, you know, after a certain point, you have to call it something. Yeah, really. <laughs> like the little boy in the, in, in the Druze village, the, the, temp, the, uh, the current case of the little boy yeah, uh-huh. yeah. speaking perfect English. You know, what are you going to call that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable, yeah, but yeah, there's an explanation. You know, right. when you get thousands of these cases that all point in the same direction, mm-hmm. you got to call it something. Yeah. It's not possession because no. this 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 is integrated in the personality from birth. So right. you could call reincarnation possession of a, a another person at birth. You know, <laughs> like you know what? It, it just it's a matter of semantics at that right. point. Yeah, Carol, uh, do you ever do hypnosis to future lives? No. That'd be really confusing no. for her. Here she does this well, daily. <laughs> well, okay, so, in, you know, I can't talk about quantum physics um, because I don't really understand quantum physics, and I don't yeah. think there are many people who really do. Mm-hmm. But I think that we have the choice to heal these issues from the past. Mm-hmm. At any point in our lives, yeah. you know, either spontaneously or through regression or through meditation, mm-hmm. whatever. So I think there are a number of probability fields, infinite, maybe. Hmm. So if you change course a little <clears throat> bit, it's going to change where you're going. Right. And, the, mm-hmm. and so, you know, to say, you know, you could progress into a future life at this moment. Be like a probable life. Yeah. It's a probable life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's because a doctor that, that Goldberg means who. What were you going to say, Carol? Go ahead, go ahead. I don't know. Oh, okay. Go ahead. There's a Dr. Goldberg who uh, wrote a book called Future Lives. Uh, well, what about Helen Wampa? Yeah. Right. I mean, and so, so did Brian Weiss. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do See, you, I, uh, I, I don't subscribe to it. I just, don't you know with the probabilities and i believe in probability i, I because you can shift things yeah 
Yeah. Well, what do you think of the idea that lives are not lived in a linear matter, but that all lives are being lived simultaneously and uh, at some level of consciousness, the lives are interwoven so that we uh, <coughs> perceive as a, what we perceive as a future life could affect what we think, uh, what we think and do uh, in a past life and vice versa. Well, I don't think there's time. I think that's a construct. Mm -hmm. But apparently, just from, okay, from the, the looking from the perspective of children's past lives, mm -hmm. there does seem to be, we experience these lives in linear time. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, there is like a progression there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the carryover. But I think that can change at any moment. Mm. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I think it's way beyond my comprehension. <laughs> you know, if it's all simultaneous, well, then we're, we're functioning in transcendent consciousness outside of time. Right. So none of it, none of it matters. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it gets really, you know, confusing. it's like, yeah, well, it's beyond duality yeah. beyond, beyond linear time. And that's, you know, pure consciousness. But when we're having these human experiences, I think they are in, there is some, Right in the everyday Positive world. Effect. Yeah, in the everyday mm -hmm. world, it's a lin it, time is linear. In this world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because of our because of our conditioning, and you know you probably know more about other cultures or um, you know dream time or you know maybe there's still some cultures who have survived tribal cultures where they don't function in linear time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like the Aborigines. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. So, you know, it's like, you know, from our perspective, we are operating from temp this temporal reality. Carol, I just have one more question for you. Um, That's you, all? Well, I have you, many more. You have many more, but <laughs> no, go ahead. just the one that's uh, on my mind. Uh, have you ever done a regression of someone who thinks they may have been abducted by aliens and their memories blanked? Nope, but okay. I know other people who have. Yeah. Okay. So I don't dismiss it. Yeah. It's kind of, it's not what I do though. You know, yeah. I think I get, I'm directed to clients who I resonate with. If yeah. you know right. what I mean. That's not my thing. I don't want to touch that. And, you know, I was in Brazil and they have a different perspective on this that everything is spirit attachment mm -hmm. and I don't personally see it that way so I don't get those clients uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. So I, you know I don't attract that so what I attract is kind of where I'm working from mm -hmm. and, right. you know I trust that but I you know I I know people who have abduction experiences and I don't want to touch it because I don't <laughs> know that territory I don't know that right. territory well also you you've created a method for a particular thing. Right. So right. I, that would... Uh, and it's say. also very uh, subjective and controversial as well uh, that the... Uh, how to keep the the hypnotists keep away from making suggestions. Right. Yeah. But, you know, they're, you know, like with the children's past lives or with regression therapy... You know, there are a lot of cases of abduction. You know, you know, you've yeah. heard about it. Um, I don't dismiss that at all. I mean, I think it's possible. 
you know, I think that, you know, these other dimensions are very close to us if we're open. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why does it, you know, why do some people have past life memories and other people have abductions? You know, there's so much we don't, we don't know. What, you know, what do we know? (laughs) (laughs) We just try to figure it out as we move along. Puzzle pieces. If, If people would like to go to your website, can you give us your website info? carolbowman.com pretty simple okay that's it (laughs) is that where the past life forum is um yeah you can get to the forum from my website it's a free forum um and really it it started out as just a place where parents could go whose children or adults can go if their children or children they know are having past life experiences but of course it branches off into people with all kinds of questions about reincarnation. I have a question. Do you get repeat clients? Yeah. Okay. But okay. So why? I mean, are they come back for additional healing? Is that? Well, yeah. I mean, when we do a session where we're focusing on one particular, particular aspect Uh of a client's issues or personality. um, But my feeling is, and this is uh, not everyone agrees with me, if they want to do another session, a three-hour session can do a lot. If they uh, want to do more work, I say wait at least six months to a year. Hmm. Because I think it really takes that much time to integrate the material that comes up. Well, that's interesting. What I found the- it from my personal experience that, I mean, I've, I'm still getting insights from the first regression I did more than 30 years wow. ago. Huh. Yeah. One of the things that people criticize uh, past life and uh, regressions about is that everybody comes up as Cleopatra or somebody famous uh, in the past. Does that happen? Is that Have you met Cleopatra? <laughs> well, uh, no, but I did. I did meet someone who was um, an historical figure. Mm-hmm. And um, way back, but he also, in his current life, is in a very elevated position in the government. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's not coming out of left field. In other right. words, right? Yeah. Um, but and you know, I've had some a few cases that were confirmed, but you know, not enough to write a book about, right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like right. the little details totally check out. Yeah. Like mm. I just, I had, oh, this is great. I had a client recently who was a beautiful woman. She was a ballerina and a Pilates instructor oh, wow. now. And, you know, just perfect body, beautiful. She, <laughs> um, in her regression, I can't remember exactly what we were focusing on, or I don't want to say what we were focusing yeah. on, but um, she was a fat woman in a circus. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, and she kind of placed her around 19, in the 1920s, huh. and her, she said her parents kind of sold her to the circus. Jeez. <laughs> and, she, and she said, this is really wild. And she she came up with these very strange details. She said she was so big, you know, she could feel the she couldn't move. They had to make a special chair for her. And this sounds really disgusting, but she couldn't even, 
it was that had like a potty underneath it. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it was like this is where is this coming from? It was so bizarre. Uh, well, oh. she went home and did some research, and she found out who she was. Oh jeez! She actually found a historical match, uh-huh. and hmm. I can't remember. I I have the file somewhere. I can't remember her name. Like something Pearl. Let me see if I. Can. What? Well, why did this woman come to you? Was she having issues with her weight, or no, no, no? It was more uh, self worth issues. Oh, okay. Um, but it, anyway, she found out who she was, and yeah. even the detail they had to make a special chair for her. My God, potty yeah. underneath. Oh. Yeah. That's incredible. And so she had come up with that first, right? Uh, you know. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was surprised her, and I was, you know, sitting there going, "What? Disgusting!" <laughs> you know, and how she was really sweaty, and she just died. She thought she said she described her death as her heart burst. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So and there was historical verification of that too. Yeah. Huh. Amazing. Are you going to? Yeah, that? it was. It's. It was one of those things. It's. It, you can't make this stuff up. No, you really can. Yeah, that's a good story. Is this yeah. going in your new book, Al? Yep. Just because. I can't wait to read one. this. Yeah. Thank yeah, you, Carol. Oh wait, you're are we welcome. Finished? I don't know. We have more questions. Carol, <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got to catch a train to Philadelphia. Okay, soon, I've got. Well, please don't I've get. Got, I've got a John. question real quick. Yeah. If, okay, if got just a minute, and I think there's a question in here somewhere. It might take me a second to get to it, but because uh, okay. I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm not a psychic, and I didn't stay in a Holiday Inn Express <laughs> last night, so, <laughs> but but there but there there was a study, and I can't remember. I can't remember what podcast or whatever it was that I heard about it, about how, uh, how memories, I mean, you know, memories are constantly being modified, neuro, you know, uh, neuro pathways are, you know, constantly changing and flux and everything. Mm -hmm. And, and so an example I'd heard one time, and I'm certainly paraphrasing the example even, is that you could take a two-year-old to the zoo and when they get home from the zoo that night, they may tell the story of how they saw a animal with a long neck at the zoo but a year or two later you may you know the subject may come up and that memory will have been updated because they know what a giraffe is they saw a giraffe mm-hmm. at the zoo so mm-hmm. so I guess my question would be is uh, really specifically uh, we hear a lot about uh, nurture versus nature and stuff mm-hmm. and so do you think there's anything to nurture versus nature into how these past life memories are if if they begin to fade or are incorporated into if left if a child's left to their own devices will they incorporate those past life memories into Hmm. their current personality as as oh they are already integrated they are already are integrated to the end let me <laughs> integrated into the present personality. You know, the mm. the characteristics even okay, so if you left a child to its own devices, the patterns could persist. You know, the behavioral patterns, mm. the emotional patterns, which is fine unless there's something troubling. You know, right. if the trauma's still there, it will kind of play out again and again, get triggered again and again. So this is all very much integrated into a child's personality. 
That's why when they're two, three, and four, you have a better idea of what they've been exposed to. Like with, with Chase, even at five, you know, it's like, there's no way he learned this. You know, this is just, this is his personality. It's emanating from him. And Ian Stevenson, you know, very, put it very succinctly that we are nature, nurture, and reincarnation, Hmm. you know, all three together. But I would take it a step further and say that some of the nature is patterning we're carrying over. Right. Because and the reason because the reason I ask that question is I just, you know, I see people all the time where you're like, there is no way you would think they were adopted, you know, just the personality <laughs> is so different from the parents. <clears throat> Maybe that's yeah, some of exactly. that past life pattern pattering that uh, uh, that has uh, carried over. Anyway. Absolutely. And it's good behaviors, it's attitudes, you know, it, it, it's all kinds of things that can carry over, physical characteristics. And look at families, look mm-hmm. at siblings, mm-hmm. you know, having, you know, or twins. I, yeah, twin studies would be interesting in terms yeah, of... Yeah, that would be. We, I have a friend, this is really interesting, um, who uh, is, she's in her 70s now. When she was young, she had a regression like 30, more than 30 years ago, which she saw she died in childbirth. Hmm. And she never wanted to have children in this life, and she didn't. Hmm. And she didn't. She has an identical twin who had a past life regression separately, or maybe it was a spontaneous memory. She also had died in childbirth. Jeez. She has not had children in this life. So neither twin. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that was. That's a real interesting. I mean, I'd love to see a twin study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. You know, yeah, see, that was... identical twins. Do they have the same past same memories. life memories? You know, they would. Yeah, the, they would have had would, their own. That would be fascinating. That would be yeah. a book, book in itself, possibly. Okay, yeah. we've got twins who live next door to us, Carol. <laughs> yeah, <Identical> right. <laughs> yeah, but I th- that always intrigued me that her her sister. Yeah, that, had the that's same incredible. experience. Yeah, and they're both not married. Neither is married, but have been with partners from different cultures. Huh. You know, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, there's stories where uh, twins have uh, separated and then uh, rejoined 30 years later or whatever, and they have so many similarities in their dress, their appearance. And their lives. A lot of parallels. Yeah, those are fascinating stories. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a mystery. But I, I really believe, in fact... When I I'm gonna when I write this next book is about the the <laughs> continuum of John I'm saying this to John too the continuum of personality mm-hmm. you know looking at the past life story you know starting in childhood and seeing how it plays out through the course of a lifetime oh that's fast oh that's gonna be great yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah, yeah, when I do it yeah but yeah. Yeah, but it, that's a good question because how does how does it all tie together? And actually, there's even another aspect to it. You know that now they're doing the research of inherited family trauma mm-hmm. with Holocaust survivors, children, and grandchildren, and finding that there's actually a, a physi- physiology carries over. Really, through, through well through the, trauma the, through the trauma. 
So what I found in the regression work is we come in with these patterns and we will find a resonant family who has that somewhere in the, you know, several generations. So we're getting like a double whammy trigger. We're coming in with the patterning and we will find a resonant family of origin that matches up to trigger that pattern. Hmm. In other words, it's all a big bundle of energy. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Well, so that means I would think then that, that patterning in James Leininger, he came into a family of skeptics. Mm-hmm. Is that what triggered it? No. No? I think, I think, and I, I can't say why, I can't go into it because uh-huh. it's personal information about oh, okay. Bruce, but yeah. there's some similarities uh-huh. hmm. from Bruce's most recent past life in James's, oh. let's oh, put it wow. that way. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I really can't talk about it because yeah. I don't have permission. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till you write your next book. Hurry up. Uh, <laughs> hurry up. Well, the way things are going, it might be soon. Yeah, it might I be don't know. This is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Carol. Oh, yeah. Well, it's always wonderful talking to you. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog.synchrosecrets.com. Visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Send us email, podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. I remember there was somebody who knew me and knew my sister separately and then found out we were brother and sister and just could not believe that that was true, you know? <laughs> <There> was... <laughs> well, no comment. <laughs>